Hello. Hi, Dan. Hi, Dan. The technique of being across the room is now seeming a little exaggerated. No, I'm, I mean, I don't want to, whatever that thing is, I don't want it to be too loud. But it sounded like you were fully, like, out in the garage. Yeah, I'm just outside, outside the house. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what's this King Neptune thing? Oh, King Neptune. Well, this is, you know, I haven't been able to talk about this because it's been an it's been an information embargo. Oh, well, I mean, you posted stuff on Instagram. Does it mean it's well, okay now? Now it is because it's been announced, but they didn't want me to talk about it before it was announced. Uh, but they, yeah, the city of Seattle. Let me go. How far back do you want to go? Let me go all the way back. Go to the beginning. Um, Back in the 50s. You know, Seattle was still a pretty small town, and we didn't have um, uh, Seattle was not on the; it was not in the the national consciousness, right? Uh, my mom described watching a like a, a network news program, and uh, when they would go to the weather, or they would go to a, a map of the United States. There was San Francisco on it, mm-hmm. but then up in the northwest corner, there was just like they never referred to it. They wouldn't tell you what the weather was up in Seattle. Who cared? Right. Right. It was a city of 60,000 people. It was just like a little lumber town, a fishing town. And so in the 50s, I mean, there's always been a there's always been a very local culture here until very recently. Right. That was the whole argument for why grunge music arose because it was Seattle was so isolated from the rest of the country that it had to make its own weird uh, local culture. And Seafair is our traditional summer festival, which uh, lasts all summer, basically. The The height of Seafair is the first couple of weeks of August. Um, but Seafair has events now throughout the summer, and I guess they're, they're expanding to be throughout the year. Um, but Seafair was – so Seattle didn't used to have a Major League Baseball team. It didn't have a NFL team. It didn't have an NBA team. And the, the only sport that we were competitive in na- nationally and internationally was hydroplane racing. <laughs> I'm looking at the Seafair website, which yeah. will be in our show notes, and I see that – uh, there are pictures of this kind of a boat as well yes. as a lot of other things like pirates landing. There are triathlons. Yes. There are a Boeing maritime celebration. Well, yeah, that's just Boeing trying to figure out uh, <laughs> how to get in there. There's a, mil- you know, a milk in- carton derby. Yes. The milk carton derby is very popular. <laughs> Uh, the Mill Carton Derby is where different teams try to build seaworthy boats out of milk cartons exclusively, and then they try and sail them across Seattle's Green Lake. Um, and most of them sink, uh, which is part of the fun. So there are a lot of, and there's a giant, I mean, the biggest parade of the year is the Torchlight Parade, the, the Seafair Torchlight Parade. The Navy comes to town. So back in the old days, right, it was Seattle was very oriented 
toward the water. Um, basically, up until very recently, lumber and fish and I guess coal to a certain extent, those were the ma- major resources here uh, in western Washington. And so Seattle, even when I was a kid, really oriented toward the water. Everything had a nautical theme mm-hmm. that you heard, heard bells ringing in the town all day and night. The fog horns would go off. It was just boats. It was all about boats. And we're surrounded by freshwater too. So boats, boats, boats. So the Navy comes to town and we have what I guess is called Fleet Week, Fleet Week other places. But, you know, we have a big Navy presence here that the – you know, the USS Abraham Lincoln is up in Everett and we have the Kitsap County um, nuclear submarine base and the Whidbey Island Naval Air Station. Lots of Navy here. So for decades and, and including when I was a little kid and even when I was a big kid, even when I was an adult, Seafair is like a it's a regional. It's a very local yokel kind of thing. But the town always traditionally just went bonkers. Um, Now that so many people have moved to Seattle that are not from here and Seattle has oriented itself around tech, you get the sense that there are people living in Seattle who have been living here for even for years who don't even think of the ocean as being anything other than something that they look out out of their window. (laughs) Right. Right. I mean, they see the ocean down there. They know it's there. They go. I mean, sometimes they get they get nearer to it. Um, and the lake is over there. You, you know, they're they're conscious of the water, but it's mostly like, oh, well, I have to go over these bridges or, you know, they're not like interacting with the water. And I don't I don't mean like water skiing, but just thinking about themselves and where they live as being located in a specific place with a very unique character. And I think what, when we work in tech or when we're online a lot, it just everywhere seems like everywhere. True. But Seattle is very, you know, geographically unique, culturally unique. So Seafair came to me and Seafair has this, you know, they're a year round organization and it's a, it's a big operation. They came to me earlier this year and they said, we would like you to be King Neptune. I mean, how could you say no? Well, you can't. I mean, I wandered around thinking for, for a few days, like, am I becoming a caricature of myself? I think a little. I am. <laughs> I think that's um, just aging. <laughs> but, but at the same time, like my dad and my great uncle, like – if they knew, I mean, they've both passed away, but if they knew that I was King Neptune, I think that they would, they would chortle a healthy, a happy chortle that their, that their scion had continued in their, in their corny footsteps. Um, so I said, of course I will be King Neptune. And they said, well, here's a list of all the things that we'd like you to do during the summer. It's a, you know, comprehensive list. You don't have to do everything. Oh, this isn't just for a day. This is the whole summer long. Oh, it's for the whole year. my friend. So once you're King Neptune, this is a year long, 365 day commitment at a minimum. It sounds like that's right. And then next year at this time, I will pass my crown to next year's King Neptune. 
and then I will be King Neptune Emeritus. So not quite director of the CIA Emeritus, mm-hmm. but once you're King Neptune, I don't think they can ever take it away from you, right? Is it sort of like a Miss America thing where you can only win it once or a presidency where you've got a term limit and it's a one-year term is the max? Or could you continue on? Like if you do a really good job, could you be crowned again next year? I think I will do a very good job. It, I think it is. Uh, I think there are term limits. Looking back, there may have been one King Neptune who did it two years back in 1961. So there is precedent for that. There is precedent for it, and I may go to them and say, "Like, listen, you're not going to do better than me. What are you going to do? You're going to go get some restaurant tour? No, no offense, John, but what were you doing running for office when this was here waiting for you? Well, and what's what what this promises to be is all the best stuff about running for office without anybody <laughs> yelling exactly at you about what, the sewers. That's what I'm thinking about. And there's very yeah. it seems like there wouldn't be that much accountability. You're a king. Yeah, no, you're not accountable to anybody except for the, your handlers from Seafair who are <laughs> like running around trying to solve your problems for you. Right. But so they handed me this list and they were like, do you want to, you know, like peruse the list? And I went down the list and I said, every single one of these things is something I would absolutely do. Right. Like I'm King Neptune is supposed to greet the Blue Angels when they arrive to oh, be out cool. there on the so runway cool. and the Blue Angels pull in and I'm like there in my crown and with my queen Alcyon and we're like, welcome to the fest. I mean, this is some seriously old, we might as well be waving pine boughs in the air <laughs> for how old this is, right? That's, this is, we're hearkening back to some 2,500 year old crazy shit here where the, the sea King is here welcoming the jets. <laughs> and then I go on board like one of the, I, the, you know, the Navy, when they come to town, um, there's a flagship and the admirals are there and I'm invited to come have lunch with them. And I get to go kind of lord it around the whole town. I waltz into here and there and the, the city council has a thing and the mayor has a thing. And I'm just sort of there in my, in my outfit, which is going to be very fun, particularly the city council. Uh, and I preside over, <clears throat> over the milk carton derby. And when the pirates come land ashore, I, I'm responsible for <clears throat> knighting their captain kid, who is the leader of the pirates. The pirates are, <clears throat> are a, formidable institution in this town. They are somehow they get away with murder. They have one of those, um, old Navy ducks, the amphibious truck uh-huh. that they have built into a pirate ship. And it actually, you know, it goes to sea. They have a working cannon on it and they used to, even when I was a kid, they used to rage through this town, like drunken grabbing people's, throwing cherry bombs like they're terrifying. And when you get up and you meet the guys that actually are the pirates, you realize this is a calling for them. They are piratical people. (laughs) It's not a thing. It's not a costume that they put on just once a year. These are men that braid their beards, not just braid their beards, but braid shit into their beards, you know, and, (laughs) and, they have that vibe of just like, just sort of like guys on the edge, but they're so civically committed to this, this, uh, role of being seafare pirates. 
and they're, you know, they're, there's a real brotherhood among them. When I was a kid, I was terrified of them. They set off that freaking cannon, rattles windows all over town. Man. And they do, and they do. They just drive down the street and fucking blow off this cannon and jump out and <laughs> scrape their swords on the ground and everybody runs. <laughs> They're scary. It sounds kind of scary, especially if you're a kid and you believe in pirates already, you know? Yeah. Oh, so last year, so this is the thing. Seafair has, in recent times, started to feel a little irrelevant and a little not, not cheap, but it's just fallen quite a bit from its heyday. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, like the Torchlight Parade was a big, big deal. And and it was one of those things where the whole city kind of uh, loosened their necktie for a week and everybody got a little crazy. And people would dress in costumes, you know, like businessmen would walk around with big feathered hats and... <laughs> You know, it's like a, it was like a f- f- fun, it was a Mardi Gras, but lately it seemed a little bit, it's just gotten a little shabby. Like the people that love the big jets and the hydroplane boats are not sophisticated downtown Seattle urbanites, right? They're the people from around the region. In a lot of cases, they're the, they're the NASCAR audience. They love loud, fast rock and roll machines and so you know and then that's the same crowd that likes big fireworks displays that's the same you know it's the it's the the people from outside of the city and they all come into the city for this big event and of course the sophisticates downtown are all like harumph 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 Mm -hmm. and and it's been very popular among the the ivory tower social side of the town to kind of decide that seafair has become day class a even though they were the ones you know that used to like really lose it for seafair it used to be very fun for the for that um you know for the middle brows to or the high middle brows to let them let their hair down but now they're too good for seafair or not not entirely but that's the vibe on the street so the last few years right the king neptune is a job that's been given to like second string Seahawks or not second string, obviously, but it's not, it's not like the quarterback. It's somebody on the Seahawks, let's say, or uh, Tom Skerritt did it one year. Um, Cause Tom Skerritt is also like a C- he's a Seattle guy and Mr. Top gun. They, the Navy loves him. Um, but last year, the pirates came ashore in their big ceremonial landing out mm-hmm. on Alki Beach. And they presented their Captain Kid, their choice for this year for their Captain Kid. <clears throat> and King Neptune was not at the event. King Neptune skipped the pirate landing. <laughs> that seems like a, a pretty important thing. Well, yeah. You don't want to miss Neptune, that did not understand how important his job was. And he was like, oh, thanks for the crown. And then he's like, you know, herp a derp. Right. Well, so the pirates come and they're like, where is King Neptune? And the seafair people were like, well, he, he couldn't come, but, uh, you know, we have the mayor here and he's going to knight your Captain Kid. 
And the pirate said, no. Captain Kidd is knighted by King Neptune. Only. Oh, oh, okay. And they said, well, Queen Alcyon is here. And they were like, no, you are not listening. Only King Neptune can knight Captain Kidd. So their Captain Kidd <clears throat> reigned for this entire year unknighted. And when they crowned me yesterday as King Neptune, yeah. my first official order, along with my queen, Queen Alcyon, um, the first thing we did was this pirate jumped up on stage. I mean, you know, it, this was all this was all planned. Knelt on a pillow, and we finally righted this historic injustice um. and knighted him, Captain Kidd. But he's only going to be Captain Kidd for a month, and then we have to knight a new Captain Kidd. Anyway, we'll let the pirates sort it out. But they are very serious. <laughs> the pirates are very, very serious about this game. It's not a game <clears throat> to them. It's, a, it's very, very real. And so it's very real to me. I am not going to. I'm not going to shirk my responsibilities. I'm already making plans to make everybody in this town regret that I was ever <laughs> that I anyone ever put a crown on my head. I'm going to I'm going to be the biggest pain in the ass Seattle scene in a long time, although I already were. I already was. So that's my game. Our first sponsor is a returning sponsor. It's Mac Weldon. Better than whatever you're wearing right now. That is their goal. That is the thing they want to be. They believe in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. And I can tell you that they accomplish each of those things. This is based on my personal experience. I wanted to try out the Mack Weldon stuff. And, uh, and I did. And I went through the process. I picked some stuff out. I bought it. I got it. And it's great. And I find that I wear it all of the time. They do some of the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts. They got hoodies. They've got sweatpants. And these are the most comfortable items that you'll probably ever wear. They even have a line of silver underwear that John loves uh, and shirts too that are naturally antimicrobial. What does that mean? It means they eliminate odor naturally. Real silver woven into them. And, and that's, that's how it works. They, now, they want you to be comfortable, right? You don't like your first pair, you keep it, but they still refund you. That's how confident they are in the stuff that they are making. And I'm telling you, and they can't pay me to say this, the stuff that they make is great and I really enjoy wearing it. They could pay me to tell you about it, but they can't pay me to actually tell you that I like it and I do. They make great stuff. It's at MacWeldon.com, 20% off using the promo code ROADWORK. So go check it out. Next time you need a pair of underwear or some socks or a shirt, try it. Just try it. Open your horizons a little bit. Expand them at MacWeldon.com. 20% off with the code ROADWORK. Well, congratulations on the appointment. Thank you. And uh, Thank you. I, so. It's really a coronation rather than appointment. True, yeah. Very true. So are you going then to be like, this is how often are you called upon to to do something? Is it weekly? Is it daily? Is it more, you know, like every few months you have to do it? Is it all summer? I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like how often are you on the hook uh, for this? There's a kind of crescendo that starts 
now. There's a little, you know, there's this and that. I mean, they asked me yesterday after, uh, after the coronation, if I would come with them and go visit a couple of Starbucks where they were having seafare <laughs> events at various large Starbucks in town. Right. And I begged off from that. This is sort of, you know, I mean, being Seattle and all, I think a Starbucks is kind of a historical yeah. uh, building of some kind. You yeah, know? it's a good, good old tradition. I mean, Seafair is, is working. <clears throat> they are working all the time. They recognize that I'm not going to come to any Starbucks, but at the at the moment I was like flush in, in the – in the spirit of being, uh, of having this big event downtown. Cause it was a big, you know, out, outside in the central square of Seattle, they had this coronation and they brought a hydroplane boat and there were clowns and, um, and they were like, you know, we're going up to these Starbucks and I almost, I was like, Oh, it sounds like fun. And then I was like, wait a minute, the King of Neptune doesn't go to every freaking Starbucks in town. Got to make it a little bit of a, of a, a rare event. But so then 4th of July comes and there's a big, 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 big fireworks display and rock concert that happens. And I will preside there. The, then, and, and then events start happening more and more frequently. And then the, like the last week of July, first week of August, it really gets crazy. And then it's like every day there's something. And then... I think there's like three or four days there where there are three or four things in a day. But here are some of the things, right? Like there's a barge that's out in the center of Lake Washington during the Blue Angels display. Mm -hmm. And the Blue Angels, because we have this wonderful lake, the Blue Angels can get like right down on the surface of the lake, you know, just like there are a couple of floating bridges that they have to kind of pull up and, and make sure they pop over, but they really do these long, fast strafing runs, uh, right close to the water. And then they do, they do their whole act, but it's up over the lake. So presumably if one of them like goes out of control, they'll, they'll splash down rather than crash their plane into a big crowd of people. That's the idea. And Seattle has always, for all of our seafares and all of our fun events, we always use this lake as kind of, it's this really long lake right down the middle of town. And you can just run your, your jet boat or your helicopter. You know, the famously at Seafair, one of the, when they introduced the Boeing 707, they introduced it at Seafair hmm. by flying a long, low pass. Oh, wow. Of this brand, brand new jet airplane right down the center of the lake. And even more famously, um, on this first introduction, they, uh, the, so the jet, uh, the jet is like flying down big, big, like, here it is the, the new moment of, uh, the new moment in history. Like we're, we now are entering the jet age and they had, uh, their famous, famous te test pilot flying the jet, uh, whose name was. Um, Tex, Tex, Tex Johnson, John Johnston, Tex Johnston. And he was uh, like a, you know, their test pilot that wore cowboy boots and a hat. And, you know, he was like the, he had, he was very rakish. I guy. like him already. Yeah. Tex Johnson. Johnson. Johnson okay. And his Johnson. full name is Alvin M. Johnston, AKA Tex. 
Johnston. Yes, with a T. Uh-huh. An American jet uh, age test pilot. Yeah, he's a real local character and uh, and a beloved test pilot. But so he is flying this 707 down the lake and he rolls it. <laughs> he like flips it over on its back without having <laughs> without telling anybody he was going to do it. And just does a barrel roll right down the center of the lake. And incredibly, no one took a picture of it. There's like tens of thousands of people lining the lake to watch the the display. And somehow nobody got a picture of this jet upside down. I think he 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 rolled it and everybody just dropped their cameras. It was such a like such a why because that was the biggest plane anybody had ever seen right and he didn't tell Boeing he was going to do it and then when he landed they were super mad at him and he said look I just sold you like a thousand airplanes by doing that and I guess they realized that you know yes a yes and b he's a test pilot with a mustache like he's going to do some crazy things but so that happened at Seafair right we do Everything happens at Seafair in Seattle. Oh, but what I was saying, there's a barge in the center of the lake that the Navy uses for air traffic control. They have their guys out there on the boat talking to the Blue Angels as they fly like 10 feet off the deck. And they're, you know, they're like the Blue Angels air traffic control. Right. And King Neptune can go stand out there with them on that barge during the during the jets. Now, is that a thing that I would not want to do no i mean all the stuff yeah. that you need to do sounds like stuff that if you were given the opportunity to do you would be doing it anyway i would be i would be doing this if i were if i were allowed to do this exactly yes, I would be doing this. um and so now i am allowed to do it not only allowed but encouraged right i'm allowed i'm allowed and encouraged and encouraged to be there with a sword and a trident in my hand <laughs> sort of like a a modern day Poseidon. Well, in fact, Neptune is the is the Roman, Roman of Poseidon. Poseidon, yeah, yeah. Do you do you and usually I told, go with the Roman names or the Greek names? Well, it depends. It really depends on on the god, right? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of uh, it's sort of like, do you uh, what like what story are you talking about? Right, I mean. Poseidon is is what I think is the maybe the more common Halloween costume, whereas Neptune is more com is the more common uh, motif for uh, Art Deco theater. Mm, okay, right, right. <laughs> so yeah, it. it, it it, I, I think it varies. It varies by by when uh, when when the god really really came into his own, or her own. So that's my story, Dan. I'm I'm uh, I got my whole I got my whole summer laid out for me. I told I told my daughter that now that I was a king, I would I would actually uh, like crown her as queen as princess as my princess for the. For the Seafair Festival, right, it goes I went from to being, this, from being a nickname to an actual title that she now could have. That's right. I went and uh, I went to uh, the Seafair people, and I was like, "Listen, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to uh, crown my daughter." And they were like, "That's a great idea. 
And so now there's going to be an event. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, she's going to get up on stage at some point, and and I'm going to oh, uh, put a little wait. little sword on each of her shoulders. I'll probably I'll probably ask Queen Alcyon to do it because I think Marla would be more impressed if a queen did it. And then she'll get a little crown. Will she be able to then have duties of her own, or just is it more of a? You know, is she kind of a puppet princess in that way? I think very definitely she will find uh, her natural inclination will be to then have a large court of attending other princesses. Mm. You know what I mean? Like there are, she's going to have um, she's going to have quite a community and I'm going to find a way I think. You know, they can't all be they can't all be official seafair princesses, but I'm gonna find a way to to get as many different princess crowns as I can here and uh and have some kind of ceremony where all of her friends can also wear their nice dresses and become right become a- a- adjunct princesses of seafair. You know, it's a it, it all has a very nautical theme, right? So it's a it's a great opportunity to wear your your uh aerial dresses and they all have them. <laughs> yeah, of course. My girl who's the same age as yours will any excuse to wear the aerial dress. Even just watching the movie on TV will be enough of a reason to put that on. So to think yeah. that your daughter is actually part of her duties are to wear it or something like it. That's pretty awesome. Well, yeah, the the I guess it's not a problem, but one of the one of the curious facts of my daughter's life is that she has now been already, I think, in three major parades, um, which is to say, like parades that go through the entire town that have floats and bands and and dancers and Chinese dragons and crowds lining the streets and so she has begun and i think this year is going to be the one that really pushes her over the edge she's begun to think that summertime is a time when you go and are in a parade either riding in the back of a cadillac or on a float or at one one parade in the chinatown parade a couple of years ago i gave her a big bag of candy and her friend a bag of candy and the two of them ran up and down the side the sidelines handing candy out to all the kids, which they thought was like the greatest job in the world. But so I'm raising a child who thinks that it's normal to be in parades is what I was saying. I mean, every daughter I would think wants to be in a parade, especially a parade that's about her or about Mm -hmm. her, her father perhaps, but best to be, Mm -hmm. I would think about her. Mm -hmm. And now there were, there were a couple things that I noticed. I don't want to get too far off topic uh but uh, there one of the things is you posted on instagram you posted a number of photos of you being crowned and post crowning and with with some mermaids so i'll put a link to those into the show notes but there was one thing that an audience member noticed and specifically asked me to address to you Uh and that is on um one of the photos that you put up there, which is a photo of you wearing a pair of white 
leather or perhaps suede shoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a photo of your feet. Very millennial of you, I must say. Yeah. Yes. But they noticed that you, your laces are, I forget the exact term that the, the listener used, but that your laces are in they're inside they're they're not centered so like if you were to tie your shoes the way you know like your your parents would show you when you're a little kid the knot would fall directly in the center above in the middle of the space between the laces where the the tongue of the shoe is yes and yours are slid if you will to to the left he says oh here i found the tweet uh, listener brent his laces tie uh, tie point is offset to the inside and mm-hmm. he says this has to be intentional right <laughs> and where did he learn this technique <laughs> so i i thought that this this episode would be the perfect place to address this well Brent, this is a um, this is a, a classic example, not of a of a thing, because nobody does this. Nobody ties their laces like this. I have a guess, before or if you if you want me to uh, guess what happened. Okay, you go ahead. All right, and please tell me, please tell me. I th- I already think I'm going to be wrong, but you were perhaps late to the event, and you were driving, and you were tying your shoes while you were driving, and the way one does that is they sort of kick their foot up onto their knees if they were sitting cross-legged and you tied your shoe at the stoplight, hopefully safely, while you were in transit. And, and the nature of tying a shoe that way is it's going to be inset, as he said. That's my guess. Hmm. I'm going to say I'm wrong well, though, based on your response. Yeah, that is a crazy guess. And I think largely because even in my giant truck – it would be very hard to get my leg up. Right. It's just, I, I just do not fit into cars that same the whole, way. The whole giantism thing. Well, it's just like when, if I drop a thing on the floor in an airplane, uh-huh. forget it. <laughs> it's gone. <laughs> Pretty much. Okay. <laughs> There's no way I can bend over to get it. I just can't. I mean, if there, even if there's somebody, even if there's not someone sitting next to me in the, in the, chair next to me i have to like it is a big process to get myself over and down <clears throat> and i watch people drop stuff on the floor and they lean forward and they pick it up all the time and i'm just like wow it's got to be so nice to be in a plane and not feel really like you're shoehorned into a car yeah. but no little things like this <clears throat> i used to know a guy who would roll the cuffs of his shirt, but just like a quarter of an inch, just, just the, um, just the amount of the seam plus a little bit more. He would just roll his, his shirt cuffs back Hmm. just a little, just a little bit. And it was just a tiny bit of flare. And it was a thing that belonged to him. And there wasn't any reason behind it. Okay. He just liked it. And I think it started because he didn't like the way the, the seam of the cuff kind of rubbed on his hand. Uh-huh. 
And so he rolled it back a little bit, just a little, and then it gave it a softer <clears throat> cuff for his delicate wrist. But then he, <laughs> then he liked it. You know, he liked, he has a little bit of, it's just a little, little extra thing that no one will notice. Right. right. But if someone does notice you're, you're pleased by it, but it's your little thing. And so I have a lot of little, um, they're not, there's nothing OCD about them. If my, if I tie my shoes and they, and they don't have this, it's not like I worry about it. I don't have to go redo it. But if I'm like dressing for an event, I'll put that little extra bit of what becomes a symmetry, right? It's right. a, just a tiny little symmetry that adds a little sort of thing that only I notice. And I was not conscious of it when I took this picture of the shoes. The only reason I did the shoes was just that people were like, what are the shoes? Tell us, gotta be the shoes. So I said, you know, and I do periodically take pictures of my shoes. Um, so, but then I, but I wasn't, I wasn't consciously highlighting the, the little bit of flair, but it's those, those tiny little games that you play with yourself, right? Or the little, little extra bit of just a tiny sprinkle of sugar or salt on things that individuates, um, your commonplace things, you know, like tying your shoes. God, you got to do it every day. And I don't know if you've ever gone online and looked at, um, the cult of, shoelace pattern yes are you hip to this uh i i have i have researched the shoelace patterns that you can do and there have are a lot i don't think we've ever talked about this but uh i'd love i'd love to get your take on it well you'll see that these shoes you're talking about lacing a, lacing patterns and the oh, the lacing. way one one laces shoes and also it looks like maybe i'm imagining but are you even doing a standard knot there are you doing something special with the knot too no, the knot is standard, but the but the lacing pattern isn't standard. No, no, it's great though. And I mean a lot of the there's a there's sort of a standard lacing pattern that is used by men's dress shoes, mm -hmm. like expensive dress shoes where it seems like it's just sort of lines going straight across. You don't see a crossing of the laces. It it's um it's you can look it up and it's pretty easy to see like the lacing goes sort of in one direction and it feels like it's the shoe is stitched on and then the bottom lace comes up the inside. You can't see it. And then you tie it up top in some way that I just find awful. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I do when I have a new pair of dress shoes is I take out the whatever their lacing pattern is and, and put my own in. Um, but a lot of times like you'll see the the furthest down lace, the, the, the lace that crosses um, the closest to the toe. You know, depending on whether how I feel or what kind of shoe it is, I'll have that lace either under or over. Mm. And then from there, you know, you have all the all these different options of like, how am I gonna do the rest of this shoe? It's a it's just a dumb thing, frankly. It's just another another thing in the world of dumb things. You know, there are a lot of people who would never, it would never occur to them to do something like that in a million years. That it would, they would never, never occur to them to, to do anything special with their shoes or with their laces. That they're just, they're happy enough to just put the laces, the shoes on. The fact that they're wearing shoes, that's enough mm -hmm. for them. 
I got them on. Yeah, I, w- I was able to put my shoes on today <laughs> and, and still get to work on time. Uh-huh. I think that it is, ah, what is it? You know, there are so many things that we do as a matter of rote. And in a way, depending on how you live, it can be the majority of things you do, right? You come home, you cook, you cook one of the same five things that you cook. That's certainly true of me. I mean, I don't make, I don't sit down and make um, masala beef as often as I make macaroni and beef. Right. <laughs> um, but so all this stuff, the way you put your key in the door, the route you take to work, um, you know, your, your patterns and those patterns are comforting and they are efficient, but they can get, I mean, obviously by definition, they're static. They can also get, they can be a prison. Um, and I'm not especially worried about patterns being a prison, but I do keep on watch um, not defensively, but just for opportunities to do something different. So mm-hmm. I, I, I'll, I'll always order a different thing in a restaurant. If I go to a restaurant all the time, I just go down the menu and I order, I try and order everything from that restaurant right. over time. Right. Oh, so I mean, you're, you're saying you won't, you don't like eat something and you never say, oh, that was the best burger I've ever had. And the next time I'm coming, I'm definitely getting that same burger. You'll specifically not get that burger, even though it might have been the best burger you've ever had. You don't want it twice. You'd rather get something that well, might turn out to be lackluster and not as good as the the first yeah, one. Generally, I mean, if it's a situation like you go to a burger place, yeah, and they got burgers, yeah, and then they have all these burgers like the Hawaiian burger and the taco burger and the. I don't feel a need to get a Hawaiian burger, right? right? It's a burger and you put a, you put like a pineapple on it. That doesn't, that's not like, whoa. But if I'm going to a restaurant where they have meals, mm-hmm. um, and I have, and I have my favorites, I mean, I'll rotate my favorite in there periodically. Right. And I don't need to get the menudo, right? I've like had menudo and I don't, I know that I don't need to try it everywhere, but I'm going to go down and see what the house specials are. I'm going to order a a variety of different ingredients over time. You know, I'm going to try the fish. I'm going to just because, because it's too easy to go in and get uh, burritos, rancheros every time. But, and also, you know, I try and take a different route when I'm traveling. I don't like to take the same route. Right. I don't like to retrace my steps and I don't like to, um, I don't like to, to get into a rut. I, I do like dead ends just because once you go up to the end of a dead end, you know, now what's going on. Usually at the end of a dead end, I'll look around and see if there's any way that I could continue on foot. (laughs) And then you turn around and you're like, I know what's up there. Like, I knew it was a dead end because it had a sign that said dead end. But I went up there anyway. And now I know what's up there. I don't have to go up there again. But I also don't have to drive by there wondering what's up there. So, yeah, it's a relationship to pattern. And... I mean, I certainly have all 
kinds of patterns. And I'm not trying to like, I'm not trying to change my religion or anything. I just, um, you know, if I find a tie that goes with a shirt, I probably will not put that tie with the shirt again. I would rather risk having a tie, having, putting a tie that didn't go with the shirt. I would rather risk that than having like a shirt and a tie that belong together Mm. in my, you know, belong together in my mind. Oh, so all of my shoes are laced differently. That's the other thing, right? That I don't like have a lacing pattern that belongs to me that I that I uh, use for everything. It's like that shoe is laced this way and this shoe is laced that way. And Is there a reason why each of them or is it just simply you want to try something new with each shoe that you get? Or is it like this shoe, because of its character, that needs this kind of lace, which I haven't used yet. So, Well, that's the other thing. It's not – I don't – it's not necessary that all my shoes have the, have a have a different lacing pattern from one another. I mean, a lot of the shoes have the same or have a similar lacing pattern to one another. Hmm. But but there isn't a you wouldn't if you picked two random pairs of shoes and put them next to each other, probably they're not going to have the same lacing pattern. And mostly it's because it, mostly it's a result of when I'm first lacing those shoes, whatever I'm thinking about or whatever my, you know, whatever my mood is affects like how I put the laces in the boot Mm -hmm. or shoe. And then that's how it is forever. Unless it's a, unless it was a really bad design. Right. Or unless I decide that the shoe needs some kind of, like I had a pair of boots that had waxed shoelaces and they just annoyed the shit out of me for Mm. months. Every time I tied them, I was just like, ugh. And then I had that realization that we so often do, which is I, I realized, wait a minute, I own these boots. Right. I, I, I don't have to use – these laces aren't – there's not somebody back in Minnesota where these boots were made like watching to make sure that I don't modify them. Right. It's up to you. You do so what I, you want. That's right. So I took those uh, laces out of those boots as fast as I could and I replaced them with some other laces. I've never been – I've never looked back. That's one of those things you get to do. You get to make that choice. But people often That's, don't do that until the lace breaks. The lace comes off the shoe. It's broken. And you're like, oh, I guess I got And half the time, you know what? More than half the time, people are going to go and get the same exact lace. Well, here's old lace. It broke. I just want a new one. They don't even think outside of that. Um, yeah, well... uh. I sometimes make some lace mistakes. Um, I put some, I thought that it would be nice to have white laces uh, in a, in a pair of boots and I put them in and then I, everybody cat called me. All the, all the people in my life were like, boo hiss. And I was like, what, what's the matter? And the, the impression seemed to be that white laces in those boots were equivalent to wearing white socks with wingtips uh, or something. That's not good. And so, so there's all this, there's all the, this coding in laces. And of course, you know, there's all the skinhead, uh, boot lace codes. They have to be careful about, but, uh, but I, I didn't realize that like, you know, sort of what I bought these white shoelaces at a drugstore and I thought this is great. 
but then I got yelled at. So, uh, so I traded him for some brown laces and now, you know, I got, I'm, I'm left alone. Yeah. Now, are you, I've only ever seen you in boots or a pair of dress shoes. What I would call, I guess you call them dress shoes. I've never seen you as far as I can remember uh, in person or on video wearing like a pair of sneakers. Um, tennis, tennis shoes, as they would say in the UK. I also say tennis shoes. Yeah, that's all right. Or, or uh, tenny runners. Sure. Um, I do have tennis shoes, that, but my tennis shoes are typically either uh, Converse or Adidas. Huh. And the, the Adidas I wear are maybe predictably uh, Stan Smith's. And also uh, shell toe Adidas. Hmm. But I – and I wear the Stan Smiths, but the shell toe Adidas I um, – you know, I wear when I'm doing something sporty. Right. Which is, which is less often nowadays that I do something sporty. But I, I, I think it came from being on stage a lot – and then seeing photographs taken of of your show, right? You're up on stage. People want to take pictures of your show. Then they put pictures of your show on the internet. And so you have a pretty good sense night after night of how you are presenting yourself. And, and you know, the way that I dress is often a little um, ad hoc. Mm-hmm. And it's from those photographs that I realized how important it is that performers have tight clothes on. Um, I used to play shows in my like loose jeans and my loose shirt. And it's fine. You know, if you're schlubbing around town or if you're sitting at your computer, but if you're on stage putting on a show and you look like a pile of dirty clothes, um, it just isn't very sexy, right? Right. It it isn't what people. It doesn't look as slick, and so I started wearing skinny jeans. And at first, I was like, "Oh my god, I'm wearing skinny jeans. This is an embarrassment." But you realize from a distance, they don't really read like skinny jeans. They just look like jeans, but you can see the shape of the person. Mm-hmm. You can see the legs instead of just like denim curtains or whatever. And so, so I started wearing slimmer fitting clothes and I still, you know, it's still like a balance. You want to strike a balance where it's not like slim fit to the point that it's uncomfortable looking, but slim enough that people can see that you are a human shape at a distance. Right. And part of that also was realizing, um, oh, Right, your shoes also matter. And it's hard for me to keep tennis shoes clean. Hmm. So my tennis shoes were always had, you know, they were dirty because I use them to mow the lawn and then they get that weird green tinge because I like white tennis shoes. That's the other thing. White tennis shoes and then they get green when you mow the lawn and then you're standing up on stage and it looks like you are standing in like some... uh, 
like you're standing in gravy or something from a distance, <laughs> you know? Sure. So I stopped wearing tennis shoes on stage and then pretty soon, you know, you're just, but the, the but the, the, the real issue is that a lot of the shoes that I have have metal in them as part of their construction. Like a steel toe the, or something. I don't like steel toes, but they do have a steel shank. Steel shank. And then that sets off the freaking TSA beepers. And I hate, you know, once you get pre-checked, the last thing you want is to take your shoes off. It's like, it feels like such a, it feels like such a gift to not have to take your shoes off that to wear shoes to the airport that you know, you're going to have to take off is like to negate. It's like somebody gives you a hundred dollars and you give them $75 back. Right. It's like, I don't want to take my shoes off. It's the whole point. It's the, it's. Like you sit and you worry about airplanes are so crazy. You buy a $300 ticket. You could have gotten a $320 ticket that was a better seat on a better airline that left at a better time, but it's $20 more. So you get this the cheapest ticket you possibly can. And then you get on the plane and you spend $45 on a movie and a, and a, you know, a bento box right. or whatever. Like we just completely forget what money is worth when it comes to airplanes because we think that we're really, really getting away with murder by getting the cheapest airline ticket we can. And then we are, then it's the worst experience of our lives. Right. But then you get off, you get off and immediately spend $70 taking a lift into town. It's like, ugh. but so I, so I have a lot of shoes that I can't, I don't want to take on trips with me because they set off TSA and I'm Dan, I'm frankly, I'm over a barrel here, you know? Yeah, I can tell. I think, I mean, this is a problem with just, I mean, we, we could do a whole show just on the trouble with air travel. Uh, but I mean, what are you doing? What are you doing in your, in your life that you need a shoe with a metal shank and by the way, in a boot or a shoe, the shank is a part of the supportive structure between the insole and outsole. It says yes. that the presence of a shank is crucial to the functionality of mountaineering boots mm-hmm. as they diminish the load incurred by the wearer's feet and calves over the course of an ascent. Contemporary shanks are more commonly made up of less heat-conductive but equally rigid options such as fiberglass and Kevlar, and it contributes a protective element to the footwear into which they are integrated, helping shield the wearer's feet from puncture wounds and stone bruises. Ah, uh, stone bruises. Stone bruises, also known as uh, metatarsalgia. Mm-hmm. Literally, metatarsal pain, also known as a stone bruise. It's any painful foot condition affecting the metatarsal region of the foot. Are you, I mean, are you dealing with this? Is this something that strolling around Seattle with your crown on that you're, you need like a metal shank in your shoe? Um, no, it is not that, um, it is not a situation where you say I need to buy these shoes because they have a metal shank because I am experiencing so much stone bruising. Right. 
as much as it is that um, the uh, sort of work boots that I have preferred for many years are constructed in such a way that they often include a steel shank in the in the very premise of the boot. You know what I mean? Like it's built into it. Um, if you are going to wear logger boots, for instance, if you are right. a logger, this is a feature. And I've been wearing logger boots for uh, for many years because of because it is a Northwest affectation, I guess. But also, boots are in this climate. It's nice to have boots on. Boots make you feel like you got big boots on. You know, it's if you were somebody that wore loafers, for instance, like <clears throat> leather-soled loafers. Right. Which, if you lived in Palm Beach, like slip-on loafers would be such a nice way to scoot around. But in the Northwest, I mean, just getting from my house to my car those loafers would be ruined forever um, because it just rains up here all the time. And the, and you know, I don't have sidewalks in my neighborhood. I don't have a front walk from my front door to the car, right? It's just like I step out of my house immediately into a mud puddle. <laughs> so we just end up wearing boots up here because it's, it's practical. And then I am somebody that chooses things that are over-designed. Right. I mean, I do not need logger boots. It's been a while since I climbed a phone pole. But if you if you offer me two pairs of boots, one of them is like designed for walking around town. And one of them is designed for living in the forest. I will always pick the one that's designed to live in the forest. Sure, right. It's part of just – being prepared it's part of going up every day you're, dead a, pre end you're a prepper you gotta prep a little i'm not a super prepper i don't have like a five thousand gallon tank of of uh, bunker oil in my right now if, in my if, if, if the bombs fell aliens came whatever and how long could you go with your current setup in your house you can't you can't do a quick run to the 7-eleven you're just this is it how how long can you go in your with your current house, current setup? Well, assuming a couple of things. Assuming first of all that I immediately run a full bath and fill the bath tubs up with water. You have enough time to fill all of the tubs. All right. So you got all your bathtubs filled up with water. You got all the water that's in your hot water tank. Yep. Uh, and then all the water that you do have stored, because you ought to have some water stored. I have some water stored is what I'm saying. Uh, and then you got to get right away to all the stuff that's in the freezer and do something with it, right? You're going to lose a lot of it. Got to have, a, gotta have a, a cool like two-day lion gorge. Or you just sit and eat all your steaks. Right, sure. <laughs> um, well, Dan, let's see. When all is said and done, I could feed me and my family for four months. Four months? 
right now with what you've got in your do you have like a bunker? It's like an underground. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is, this is a thing that, you know, my mom is very serious about it. My sister is too. You know, if, if you, if my sister gets a hold of you and you don't have, um, your bunker, my sister will give you the business. Really? Like I did, I'm, I'm not the one in my family that generates this, this kooky energy. I'm, I am just responding to, to my environment. My mom had enough materiel in her house and I'm talking about stored water and food and propane and grappling hooks and signal flares and, um, you know, like battle pikes and whatever else she intended to be able to support her self and her neighbors, uh, up to and including like everyone on the block for a period of about that long. And wow. I said, mom, you know, when the bad times come, you barricade the door. And she said, I'm not going to treat my neighbors that way. <laughs> They're my friends. And that's not very neighborly. And I said, it's not very neighborly to stock up a, uh, a, uh, apocalypse bunker. Right. She was like, well, I mean, you know, you have to be ready, but it's not like if my neighbors come knock on the door that I'm going to turn them away. And I said, what about zombies? She said, well, I'll turn away zombies. <laughs> so at so, that point, uh, it seemed pretty logical. The food that you have, the four months worth of food, I want to get specific if you're willing to share this. Are you talking about um, MREs or are, is this cans no. of, you know, Campbell's chunky sirloin beef or so? What is it? Yeah, it is. So the game, of course, when you're when you stockpile food is that you fill up your larder <laughs> but then you have to keep eating from it. Right. You don't want, yeah. Cause if you buy cans of food today, you don't want those in five years. Yeah. You get five year old tuna. I mean, five year old tuna is fine to eat. It's just that, you know, it's a little metallic. Yeah, you want to eat, you, you don't, you don't want to just be in a bunker. You want to eat well, you want to live well. Yeah. So I buy food that I want to eat and then I eat it. And then, but I replenish it, right? It's like, it's like having a savings account instead of going paycheck to paycheck. I always try to have like an account of money and new money comes in and money goes out, but I, ne I never drain it down, right? I don't drain it down past a certain point. Right. I try not to. Sometimes I do. But so there's a lot of, you know, there are sacks of lentils and rice and other grains and, you know, general sort of cans of tomato paste and um, freeze-dried stuff a little bit. But mostly then, you know, canned stuff, boxed stuff, discrete ingredients, right? Like I've got a case of mushrooms, canned mushrooms, where it's like, Mushrooms aren't super nutritive, but you do like to have a mushroom now and again. <laughs> and you stack them, right? You stack them up. You got you got your water stacked in a couple of different ways. Like I have some bottled water, but I don't like that stuff. But we do have these big five-gallon soft-sided water uh, bags. Oh, we yeah. We have several of them. And, yeah, like all that, all the things that, you know, batteries and whatnot that you kind of keep – 
Do you have a Faraday cage? I don't have a Faraday cage. Uh, should, I guess, probably. Yeah, you can make one. You make one right after the show. I do have a lead suit. Um, but, you know, it seems more and more plausible at any, I mean, with every passing day, that what's really going to happen is that some Stuxnet is going to um, turn off all the power. Right. Right, that they're just going to, they're going to upload some virus and it's not going to be the end of days. It's not going to be that civilization crumbles. It's just the power goes away. And if you've ever watched any documentary about the New York blackout of 1977, you know that that a blackout releases pent up frustration. Right. Now in Seattle right now, there's, there's plenty of pent up frustration, but not enough that a blackout is going to cause the city to burn down. But also that the 1977 blackout, I mean, they got that power up and running in 24 hours and the Stuxnet style of, of uh, web worm, if they, <clears throat> it's entirely possible that they could design a, um, a virus that actually caused the power grid to eat itself, right? Where it's just like, sending it's not closing switches and so it's opening switches at the wrong time it's closing them at the wrong time and it could just like burn it out right. in, a, in a in a big way so that you would be without power for a while let's call it a while and maybe not like forever a while there would be there would be uh, valiant men and women on the job I mean, I do. I cannot foresee any situation where I would need four months worth of food. But my mom and sister are earthquake crazies, mm -hmm. earthquake and volcano crazies. And so we sit down periodically and have a big talk. Okay, the big one comes. Which you know, who's on the wrong side of a bridge? Where they, they think about bridges all the time. They're always talking about bridges. Right. Well, we can't go that way. There's a bridge. That, and, you know, assuming that all bridges will fall, the big one hits and every bridge is immediately demolished. And so they're, you know, they're planning routes. We have to, we used to have an assembly point uh, in town, which was my mom's house, but she just sold her house. So now the assembly point is my house, but my house is harder to get to. And, <clears throat> of course, you're assuming also that cell phones don't work. Right. So there's, I mean, ugh, the amount of time we spend talking about this is crazy. And listening to my mom and sister, you know, they just sit and they each have their, their theories of what needs to be done and what the other isn't doing. And I tend to sit and sort of, I used to sit and, with my legs crossed and read the newspaper, listening with half an ear. Now, of course, I just sit and look at my phone because that's the same mm -hmm, as right. reading a newspaper. <laughs> We would like to say thank you very much to our friends at Squarespace for making this show possible. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. Do it with Squarespace. Beautiful award-winning designer templates. You can make a beautiful website or an online store in like five seconds. Well, not five seconds. Less than five minutes, though. You can start with nothing. No domain, no logo, nothing and they help you get all of this. You can just go there, register your domain, 
Then they'll, they have a little logo making thing. Then you can start dragging and dropping and customizing the templates, making the website your own, make it look exactly the way you want it to look without any CSS, without any HTML. It is absolutely genius. Why waste time coding up and building a website when there's other things that you probably do a heck of a lot better and that are more important to your life and your business? Focus on that stuff. Focus on the stuff that you're good at. Instead of trying to build a website, they make it easy and it's so cheap. In fact, you're going to get 10% off if you use the code ROADWORK when you visit squarespace.com. You want to sell stuff? You want to upload your, your band's album? You want to put your photo gallery that you do? You're making a site for your wedding? Whatever it is, they've got a beautiful template and the infrastructure to handle it. Squarespace.com and use that code ROADWORK to get 10% off your first purchase. Dan, are you prepared? I mean, obviously, Texas has no disasters because it's God's country. But are you prepared for end times? Well, the, the number one rule, I think, for anybody for the end times is get to Texas. That's step uh-huh. one. <laughs> okay. Uh, All right. So I've done that. Yes. Um, as far as the stockpiling of food and that kind of thing, I I feel woefully unprepared and I always have. And this is in part because if, if I, if it was just up to me, if I didn't have a wife to contend with and other things like that, I, I, I think it is my natural state, my nature to be a very, very hardcore prepper and have more, you know, like, not only would I have the bags of water and the bottles of water, but I would have a some kind of rig to, you know, with condensation happening and, you know what I'm saying, and rain rainwater pre- preservation and all of that stuff. I would have already drilled down however deep I needed to get to the aquifer, whatever, you know what I'm saying? Like all of that, yes. the well, like I would have all that stuff. I would have my whole house. I would have a whole section of the house that was a Faraday cage. I'd have all of that, but right, you know, I would I would probably have different, you know, a safe house maybe in a different part of town that that had a separate, in case I was closer to that, needed shelter temporarily, or to get safe house stock up on you know food and am- ammo, whatever ammo. Well, you know, you got you got to stock up on everything. That would be, but in reality, as far as now, no, I don't have any of that stuff. Um, and I and now I'm feeling especially uh, concerned because I had always thought maybe you had this. How much space does this stuff take up in your sub basement? Well, the. You know, the key is to integrate it into your normal kitchen and your normal spaces, right? So, I mean, you have a pantry. A lot of people's pantries are just like underused. They're, you know, they put some stuff in there or whatever. But um, it's very easy. I mean, you have a garage. You're scorpion-filled two-car garage. Yeah, we've got plenty of room in the garage, sure. It's not for for a lack of room. I certainly – I certainly – have enough room to do this 
Yeah. It's more and, a matter and, of, of having to do it and then having to, like you're saying, like work through it and make sure to integrate all this stuff. I don't know. I don't, I, I mean, like I know we could get by for a couple weeks, but four months, that's what I want. That's, I want three to six months of everything just stocked away. Yeah. You have to, you have to go to Ikea or to Home Depot or mm-hmm. wherever it is that you get your, uh, crappy shelves Mm -hmm. and just buy some narrow shelves that sit uh, against one wall of the garage and you buy like a case of you buy a couple of cases of everything right a couple of cases of chili a couple of cases of corn a couple of cases of chicken noodle soup a couple of cases of macaroni and cheese craft dinner you know your your uh, like several cases of beans Giant bag of rice, giant bag of lentils, giant, you know, you can keep root vegetables for a while, but not long enough, really. So if you keep some onions and garlic around, but they'll get all desiccated over time. I mean, there, I'm sure if you went on the web, you could find people that were talking about their four month long stash of food um, and exactly what you should get. And exactly how you should store it. Oh yeah, exactly, no, I mean, this, you know, the information is certainly out there. If 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 anyone listening is curious, yeah, they'll tell you exactly what to get and how to store it and how to rotate it and all of this stuff. And I think you know, I think you're onto something because as we get, you know, more and more dependent on everything. Yeah, I mean, if the internet went out for a couple hours, people would be borderline wanting to start stockpiling food. Yeah, But I mean, I spent a lot of time in Florida, South Florida, specifically during hurricane season. And at the start of every hurricane season, I got to enjoy a little bit of the prepping aspect of it because you always needed to make sure that you had water because, you know, when when you're dealing with a hurricane, it's very, very common that even if your house is perfectly fine, you don't even lose a shingle, that you could be without power and or water for extended periods of time. And it was, it was normal to get the generator that you could hook up, hook directly into your, um, into your house. You could sort of disconnect your house from the grid and flip a switch. And now you were getting power from your generator. So you could run your generator and then just like turn the lights on in your house and stuff like that. You wouldn't have to have uh, extension cables running outside to it, things like that. That was very commonplace. So I got a little bit of a taste of it then. And I always liked that. I always loved the idea of being prepared for that kind of thing. Cause the chances of what you described happening, whether it's like a Stuxnet thing or something else that seems pretty likely to happen starting any day now today later today tomorrow it does doesn't it you know like like the idea that oh what happened well the power grid was gone for a month and you know like that that could happen probably at some point something like that will happen i don't i don't necessarily think we're going to be dealing with a full-on apocalypse but this could become unpleasant for a while yeah, that kind of thing. I mean, you know, we always <clears throat> we still talk about like, oh, when the bombs fall, but it isn't going to be that. It's going to be this little chicken shit stuff where, I mean, a tremendous amount of damage will be done, 
by a Stuxnet taking the power out, but it's not going to kill any of us. We're all just going to be like inconvenienced, bored, hungry, like, like pissed. Right. Um, it's not, it's not like the apocalypse I imagined as a kid where we all burned in a, in a, uh, the, like a Holocaust of flame. Right. Some kind of radioactive just, heap or something. Yeah. It's just like, it's a, it's a, um, death by a thousand cuts. It's like, right. ugh. Right. I just, I just installed my, my new thermostat that's voice controlled and now the power's off for a month. Right. But I, I, I think that those prepper, all those scenes of people like raiding grocery stores right before a hurricane hits, I think that that affected us. First of all, in Alaska, you have to actually have to be ready for a lot of this stuff. Because if it's January and the power goes off up there, it isn't kidding around. You know, like nature is actively trying to kill you at all times. And if it's, if the power goes off at just the wrong time up there, you know, you and your whole family are going to be huddled in the corner of the smallest room in your house, covered in every blanket you have, struggling to, you know, to keep it going or, or, or burning your furniture right. in the fireplace. So, so we were always prepared for that kind of thing. I mean, I have a friend in Bellingham that has a generator hooked up to his own house's sort of private little grid. And if the power from the city goes off, the generator kicks on immediately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and they have, you know, they have their, that's whole, the, that's the good setup to have. Yeah. That's you don't even know you, you power was interrupted. You're living just like it's a normal Tuesday. Everybody else thinks it's, you know, the end times and you're just like, uh, brushing your teeth with your electric toothbrush and yeah, that's pretty hot except that you got to keep gas in that thing. And that's going to be hard to do over the course of four months, yeah. you know, unless you're re really prepping. Um, I, 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 I was hitchhiking one time and uh, <laughs> got dropped off somewhere in Yukon territories in Canada. And I, uh, you know, I like wandered through the forest and found some guy that had like a hundred thousand gallons of gas back there. Big takes waiting for the apocalypse. It's like, Right on, man. Yeah. If the apocalypse comes, I'll, I'll come find you. And he was like, nope, don't. Yeah, really? Because he would but, have to end you. Yeah. But that whole, like, <clears throat> oh, there's a there's a natural disaster coming that happens all the time here in Florida. And now we're all panicking like it's, we never thought of it before. I just hate that shit. And I think my whole clan does. You know, like, yeah, hurricanes every year. Yeah. You didn't have water on hand? Like, why are you panicking and raiding a, uh, a grocery store. You should be ready. And it's the same thing here with earthquakes or whatever. I mean, the idea of having to run down to Safeway to get enough stuff, you know, in some sort of like riot situation where people are scrambling to get, uh, cocoa puffs because it's all that's left. Um, that just seems insane to me. And I would go down to the Safeway, right. but it would just be because there's that special kind of chocolate cake that I like that <laughs> I would try and get as many pieces of as I could before the, you know, I can't stockpile that many pieces because I will look like a crazy person, but, but, uh, I would go down and I'd go down and, and wade through the throngs all fighting over water, get to the bakery section and try and get a shopping cart full of those little slices of cake. Right. Sure. Six layer cake, Dan Safeway here makes six layer <laughs> chocolate cake. So what do you do, though, if you're hunkering down 
and you know a neighbor's knocking on John mm. John mm-hmm. uh, we're out of water here John mm. kind of hungry you know do you let him in do you just put the muzzle of the gun through the little uh the little door the you know little mini door in the in the big door I am not super uh like I'm not part of the point your gun at your neighbor's crowd. Um, I do not think that I could turn somebody away that was at the door saying alms, alms for the poor. Right. What if um, they were if like they, radioactive because they've been exposed this whole time? Oh, we'll see. Now we're, now we're talking about zombies. Sure. I'm just saying like, what if they've, you know, they've absorbed something, they've got the disease or something like that. I mean, this whole notion that your house, that you're living in a city and yet you are capable of fortifying your house yeah. into a defensible bunker right. uh, against marauders is kind of dumb. Like if you want to fortify your house against marauders, then you should have 10,000 acres and, and go like properly be a kook somewhere, live in a, a, a decommissioned silo. But if if it gets to the point in a city where there are gangs – uh, who are like scrounging for food, you know, like, like, like thrown together gangs of, of people that are just wandering the streets with right. baseball bats or whatever they can find, like looking for water. Uh, you're not going to be able to keep your garden right. going here. Right, right, you right. know, you're, you're, the integrity of your picket fence is going to be breached. And at that point, Ultimately, everybody that has ever survived an extended siege says kind of the same thing. Don't have a weapon on you at all. Right. Do not have a gun or a knife or anything that could be construed as one because the first people that find you with it will take it from you and they'll assume you are a a member of some alternate militia and they'll kill you on the spot, right? I mean, you're not going to be able to roam the wasteland with a pistol in your belt um, protecting your family unless you are some kind of person that is capable of evading armies. Uh, and maybe, you know, maybe you are. Maybe you fancy that you are. But really, the the secret to survival is to learn to live with nothing and to try to take nothing and just go live by the skin of your teeth you know all of your hoarding will all get stolen all of your your defensive perimeter will all get breached your guns will be taken you will be punished you know like the people that truly have survived awful things have done it with the clothes on their back and with their intestinal fortitude so that's the thing that i really stockpiled dan is intestinal fortitude (laughs) I could, I mean, you're very much comfortable to, to be outdoorsy and, and survive whatever the cost. I think it's, I think it's something different. I'm not comfortable being outside in the rain and the cold. Um, what I am comfortable with is discomfort. Right. You can get through it. You can, you can push through it. Yeah. If, I mean, discomfort does not imperil me. I don't, you know, discomfort doesn't paralyze me. And um, I don't 
at least so far in my life, I have not encountered the threshold of discomfort that, um, that is my, that's, that flips my breakers, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, I've never been tortured. No one's ever pulled my fingernails out with a pair of pliers, but, um, or worse, but up till now, you know, like sleeping out in the rain or being, um, beat up or hungry or being beat up hungry and sleeping in the rain, it just, it doesn't affect me inside. Um, you know, I don't, I don't give up hope and I don't feel, I don't nurse, uh, persecution complex or, you know, I don't nurse a grievance, right? right? I just get, get up and keep working. So that seems to be, if, if I, if, if there's one thing I think maybe will work for me, it's and in one of these completely unlikely, not at all going to happen disaster scenarios that there are all those fascinating magazines about at the newsstands now, these guys with solar powered chainsaws or whatever. Right. No, they would never, they would never be solar powered in a million years. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's that. And, you know, and I, and I, I have thought about the road scenarios where my daughter and I are trying to, to make it in the world. And, you know, that would, that that's the way to get to me, right? My, through my child. And sure, so that course. would be the thing that I would be the most, uh, that would be the hard part. I mean, I could just go live in a mud puddle, but right to try and, uh, that's why they always have a child in, in jeopardy in the action movies because they know that's ev- everyone's weakness. Yeah. Yeah. That is why I despise them for it. But. Yeah. I know. Me too. Yeah. Intestinal fortitude, Dan. I know. That's a thing. That's a thing everybody needs to try and cultivate. And I don't know how to, I don't know how to train for that. 